Welcome to Tools for Liberty, a program designed to intrigue you and to offer your mind critical thinking and adventure. I'm Jay Dillon Proctor, and with me here in Cord Purgatory is... Amanda Sparrow. And Anthony Alegria. So today we're going to be discussing a couple of topics, one of which, our big one, is an issue in the church, and that is, is it wrong or sinful to enjoy fiction, particularly sci-fi or fantasy? Also, we're going to be doing Hot or Not with Church History, and please stay tuned to uh, understand more about what that's about. And then we will close with a discussion and a devotional regarding some of the educational issues in our culture. But before we get to that, we want to share with you an encounter with the rector. Look at you. You disgust me. Your high fantasy Harry Potter novels. Your fictional synthesis music. Let's place this rector of this institution to bring order, not to permit fantasy. Look at you. Your disgusting hoodies. There will be no fiction which does not come out of revelation. No Gnosticism. None of these things. We will rectify this with a little bit of discipline and penance. You, your snide face. You will pay penance by disciplining yourself on this Albert system clarinet. And then once you have learned to appreciate the finer things in life, perhaps we will let you use a more modern Boehm system clarinet. And you, with your garbage literature. You. You will give me a pericope outline of each gospel. And then, when you are finished, you will give me four more. Okay, the question is, is it sinful to watch or read fiction? So when we're talking about fiction, we're talking about things like Harry Potter, Stranger Things, horror movies in general. Many people understand these to be contaminating. They're, they're something which is harmful. They, they bring in ideas which contaminate our mind. Yet others look at these, these sorts of movies and books and whatever material they may be as a pastime which either has no moral value at all, it's just something is fictional, or it is something which while not depicting the real world, it may have moral value in a different sense than, than something which is just historically true. In the church, people tend to give high notoriety to fantasy and the paranormal. And these, these really produce two very clear extremes. There are those who, who love fictional stories, and you may find all over the house they have references to these. They may have like something along the lines of a TARDIS mug. They may have a Star Wars t-shirt, something like that. And others find these things to be contagious. There are, are something which comes in and infects the mind, and they must be destroyed. And these people are much more likely to burn Harry Potter than they are to read it. So, what really is the deal with this? Those of us who are here in the studio, here in Cord Purgatory, um, what are our thoughts on this? Is this really a, a sin problem? Which side of this argument really is, is the one we need to give credence to? Or do we need to find some sort of solution somewhere in the middle? Are all fantasy and fiction things just contagious and sin and we don't need to have anything to do with it if it's not historically true? Um, or do we need to take a stance that says these are not reality, but there may be something to it which is either amoral or 
perhaps a, a moral story in, in some sort of allegorical sense. Amanda, uh, what do you think about these, especially from the angle of fiction just being fiction? Well, I think um, in one of our classes in theology back in college, one of the professors proposed that often we think of theology, there's two options, either good or bad. And he proposed maybe that there's three or even ten. So there's all these different options. And so I would think if I were to create a theological category for fiction, it would be in the category of silly or um, fun. So it really has no push or pull. Uh, it's neither for or against. It really just is. And as you said, you in every story, you're, you're going to find kind of a moral, you know, like the good guy wins, evil is, is conquered. Um, so in that sense, there may be morality in it, but it's not necessarily the, the medium itself possesses no um, intrinsic value, again, either to be something good or evil. Um, and so really fiction, when we talk about things like that have the paranormal, have ghosts and, and goblins and um, wizards and magic and all that kind of stuff, again, they're just, they're stories, they're fiction. And I think most people are intelligent enough and can understand enough to where they can see this as fiction and it has no real impact on their lives more than just they probably spend too much money on a Star Wars t-shirt or a, a Doctor Who um, coffee mug. Yeah, and to build off that a little bit, for, for some people who would argue that it is contagious, they'd be like, well, you're, you're watching this, it's, it's devil worship. They may look at something like uh, the story of It and see Pennywise the Clown and, and forget that even within the story, he is the villain. He is the antagonist of the, the movie. Um, but at the same time, there is a little bit of legitimacy to it does cause people to have nightmares in some cases. It does open up the mind to certain things. So, Anthony, why don't you do a little bit of counterpoint again where we're doing a little bit of devil's advocate and different sides here. Anthony, what are your thoughts on these pieces of fiction really are contagious? Well, there's two ways to handle the idea that the fiction is contagious. And one way is more extreme and radical than the other. One of them is basically that, you know, just mere exposure to the idea of witches and goblins and maybe um, aliens or something like that is going to be corrupting and therefore should be avoided at all costs. It should be denounced by the church, all those types of things. Okay, basically just, you know, completely cast off as something heretical. And then there's a more um, subtle or rational way to approach the idea that they can be contagious or corrupting. And that would be for very specific individual cases. Like, for instance, someone who um, would their faith would be shaken by aliens or scary movies. Maybe that person should avoid, you know, the idea of aliens or scary movies in their entertainment. But, you yeah. know, for someone who can just enjoy it without having negative consequences... I don't think that there's anything wrong with that. Well, to, to build off of that, I think that is something where we do need to have individual responsibility in how we involve in things. Again, I know a couple of weeks ago we had talked about the theology in movies, and there were secular movies that we were talking about theology in movies in, and we talked mostly about Wonder Woman and also Stephen King's It. There is the, the rational thought that like 10-year-olds don't need to be going and seeing It. That's not a good thing. There needs to be some discretion. Of course, not everybody is is fit for every movie, and they. That's where we get to this idea that movies really are mediums for for other things. And Amanda brought this point up earlier, and it's really this idea that if the the movie itself has no moral value, but we ourselves can take and do something with that, and that's really where I think the answer to this question lies. 
And again, we've been doing a little bit of devil's advocate here. We've been playing the different angles. But my thought is this. If if somebody came and asked me, as a pastor, they said, is fiction sin? As, as a person, do I need to feel guilty because I watch this? Um, even things that's sort of fiction that involves in the Christian narrative, things like... Um, well, I've done forgot the, the name of it. I'm, I've done embarrassed myself now that we're behind the microphones. Uh, the Da Vinci Code, something like that. People may come and ask, what are these things sin? What, where, do we, where do we do with this sort of thing? My, my answer to that question is simply this. If you are using whatever story it is as an avenue for your own sinful desires, then it is sin. And Anthony brought this point up earlier. If without discipline, the pathology will win. That's something we've said a lot here at Kingdom of the Lagos. If... We don't have discipline in what we watch, and we are using whatever material it is as a proxy for our own sinful desires, then yes, it is sin. Again, something like um, pornography, that can be a proxy for your own sin, and then therefore it would be sinful. Uh, if you're wanting to kill someone and you say, well, I'm going to watch videos about this, I'm going to get really excited, I'm going to go out and, and buy material where I can live out these, these sinful fantasies, then yes, that would in those cases be sin. But at the same time, we can have discipline, we can have good discretion in how we, we react to things. And and I think in those cases, it's it's less harmful. Amanda? So uh, kind of just to wrap up the ideas, we're talking about fiction. And really, this can be applied to a lot of um, artistic mediums and, and that they are mediums. Uh, they're vehicles, they're avenues. And just like a vehicle, it, it can be something very good and very productive um, in our lives, but misused and mishandled, it, it can cause some, some harm. Um, and so... We have to be a people of discipline, of understanding, and of good judgment that can evaluate, um, create structures in our lives where we're not, you know, watching TV for 12 hours a day or anything like that, where it's not fulfilling any kind of um, uh, antisocial need that can be then later harmful in our interactions with people. Um, so, again, I think good discipline, and it's been said a lot, but just as a reminder, good discipline can help us evaluate and then to um, create structures in our lives uh, where we can have fun and laugh and enjoy and maybe lose ourselves for a couple of hours in a good story. But ultimately, it, it is just something that is uh, fun. So, yeah. All right. And we'll wrap this up here. We'll be back here in a bit to do Hot or Not with Church History. For this segment, we are going to be doing some church history through hot or not. In this segment, we will examine two items from church history that may be saints, doctrines, or any substantial feature from throughout the history of the church. We will present an overview of each item and then go around asking, are these hot theological inspirations or not? In rare cases, if we cannot decide whether an item is hot or not, it may be sanctified. This is only to be used in the rarest of cases. For today, we will be looking at two saints. We're going to be looking at St. Colette and St. Blaise, and our source for these are franciscanmedia.org. And Anthony, would you go ahead and give us the overview of St. Colette? Colette did not seek the limelight, but in doing God's will, she certainly attracted a lot of attention. Colette was born in Corby, France. At 21, she began to follow the Third Order rule and became an anchoress, a woman walled into a room whose only opening was a window into the church. After four years of prayer and penance in this cell, she left it. With the approval and encouragement of the Pope, 
She joined the Poor Clares and reintroduced the primitive rule of St. Clare in the 17 monasteries she established. Her sisters were known for their poverty. They rejected any fixed income and for their perpetual fast. Colette's reform movement spread to other countries and is still striving today. Colette was canonized, canonized in 1807. All right, so the question we have now is St. Colette, is she a role model for us? Is she hot or not? Let's get into this and let's decide. Um, we'll just go around and, and ask. Amanda, I'll let you go ahead and begin with, with your thoughts on St. Colette. Um, I think initially the idea of being walled into a room does not sound like something um, I would want to imitate or for it to be a role model uh, for me. Um, but hearing her story and how she provides this kind of structure and order and this reformation really within the church um, and kind of looking at the broader history and the time that she was doing this was when the Western church was really having a lot of conflict within itself. I think there were like three popes that decided they were the pope within the Western church. And so while all this chaos is happening, she's like, no, we're going to have this order and this structure um, to, that does bring about this kind of reform within uh, the different orders that she was involved in. So that should be emulated, but I'm not sure any of us would want to wall ourselves up for however, for that many years. And, and we have a picture, um, for those of you who are listening to the podcast, uh, we actually have a, a picture that's a, a photograph, not just a painting, of what these rooms are look like. Of course, being an anchoress means that you are a person, you basically are put in a cell, um, and people would do this voluntarily. It wasn't like a, a punitive um, thing that was forced upon people. They would go into a cell, you'd basically be walled up with a little window to, to look into a church. And again, that's that's a lot to deal with. I don't know that many of us would would desire that. But let's see, Anthony, what are your thoughts on St. Colette? Well, uh, I think that she was certainly dedicated. And, you know, I wouldn't want to spend four years myself in a room like that. I mean, truly, that is a cell. Yeah. I wouldn't want to spend four years in any cell. And But I will say, you know, I can I can appreciate the, um, the asceticism and uh, obviously the effects that it had later on. All right, so give me a give me an answer, hot or not, as far as theological inspiration goes, Amanda. Uh, we'll go with hot. You'll go with hot, Anthony. As far as inspiration for me, not. Not okay. So here's it's my I've again got to pull through with this and give an answer to this. When I first read Colette's story again, a lot of us, especially in the Protestant world, we don't we aren't familiar with a lot of the saints, and for some reason we've had this great. Uh, suffering of not having enough education in terms of church history. And it really is liberating to learn about a lot of stuff. But when we look at people like St. Colette, if we can imagine people today in those shoes, again, at first she's like, we're not going to take any fixed income. So essentially she's rejecting people giving her things. But at the same time, she's so industrial. I look at this and I, I initially see the whole thing with being walled up with a little window. And I want to be like immediately not. That's not the inspiration of how I would like to, to live things. But then again, you'll be like, well, she was in there for years doing penance. And then she goes out to do se uh, building 17 monasteries. That's according to Franciscan media. If you look at other sources, the number may be 18. You get a few different uh, accounts on that. So very, very productive, doing a lot of wonderful things in the kingdom of God. Maybe it's not so bad to spend four years in a, a cell if you're willing to do that. So I actually can't decide... Um, hot or not, so I'm going to have to say sanctified in this one because it just it transcends being hot theological inspiration or not. If you're willing to spend four years in a cell prisoned up voluntarily and then go out and be that productive 
in the, the work of the kingdom. Again, when things were so divided, to Amanda's point, um, kudos for to Amanda for, for doing the the research and thinking in there. It Again, I just got to say sanctified. <laughs> Let's move on along to St. Blaise. Um, Anthony, give us the story on, on Blaise. Bishop Blaise was, martyr, was martyred in his Episcopal city of Sebastia, Armenia in 316. The legendary acts of St. Blaise were written down 400 years later. According to them, Blaise was a good bishop, working hard to encourage the spiritual and physical health of his people. Although the Edict of Toleration that took place in 311, granting freedom of worship in the Roman Empire, was already five years old, persecution still raged in Armenia. Blaise was apparently forced to flee back to flee to the back country. There he lived as a hermit in solitude and prayer, but he made friends with the wild animals. One day, a group of hunters seeking wild animals for their for the amphitheater stumbled upon Blaze's cave. They were first surprised and then frightened. The bishop was kneeling in prayer, surrounded by patiently waiting wolves, lions, and bears. The legend has it that as the hunters hauled Blaze off to, the, to prison, a mother came with her young son, who had a fishbone logged lodged in his throat. At Blaze's command, the child was able to cough up the bone. Agricolos, governor of Cappadocia, tried to persuade Blaze to sacrifice the pagan idols. The first time Blaze refused, he was beaten. The next time, he was suspended from a tree and his flesh torn with iron combs or rakes. Finally, he was beheaded. Alright, so... As we read the story of St. Blaise, the the moment he goes from being found, things escalate quickly. That that last little bit there, they're hauling him off to prison, and they decide, we're going to make you sacrifice to pagan idols. He refuses, so he gets a beating. The next time he refuses, they hang him from a tree and use combs and rakes to rip the flesh off of him. I don't know if he dies before he is beheaded, but it's it's a pretty brutal martyrdom. Um, so let's go around and, and see our thoughts on St. Blaise. And again, one of the pictures that we had that we pulled up was a stained glass window where you can see the child being brought to him for the bone to be coughed up out of the child's neck. And he is the patron saint of throat ailments, by the way. So Amanda, hot or not? Um, I think it's kind of an interesting story, especially with this idea of, of um, kind of the animals that are attracted to him um, and just like how much his um, dedication inspired like every creature around him. Um, which I think is really interesting. And and in the story, we, I know we've done some reading about him where everyone's like, well, we're really not sure what's fact, what's fiction, or, or um, what was maybe exaggerated as the story was told and retold. Um, but it does provide kind of a very um, almost mystical uh, aspect of, of this saint where um, all of creation looks at him and says, like, this is somebody to, to pay attention to. So. Yeah, I think that that's pretty cool. Anthony? Well... I guess I'm going to be the the Scrooge of Saints today, but I don't, I'm not very, in, I would have to see it, you know, like, it, it's like anything, you know, like, someone tells you that they did something amazing, unless they did it personally, like, if you're hearing it, if you're hearing it like a third person story, it's like, okay, well, that is pretty cool, and you may believe it, but, you know, to really get the awe factor, I'd have to see it, you know what I mean? Like, if, if someone told me they did, like, eight backflips in a row. Are you, are you talking about the coughing up of the the bone from the child or are you talking about being able to have all these animals come around him in his prayer life what 
what aspect of the story are you you referring to here? Well, I'm referring specifically to the animals. Okay. The animals. Um, as far as I mean, obviously it's awesome that the child was able to cough up the bone too. But that's something that you you just have to be there for that. You know what <laughs> yeah. I mean? Like to to really get like the awe factor of that. You have to be around to see the animals and that type of thing. For me, anyways. <laughs> okay. So, Anthony, hot or not? Not. Not. Mm-hmm. Amanda? I'll say hot. Not that. And then anytime we talk about martyrs, it's it's definitely something that's difficult because we're like, we want to emulate their faithfulness, yeah. but we're not quite sure we want to emulate um, the consequence of yes. their faithfulness. Um, but that being said, now it's my turn to rule on this one. This one, again, we see somebody spending a long period of their time in solitude, sort of like, Colette was doing. However, this one is a little bit more palatable. The idea of spending time in a cave with animals. I mean, who doesn't love dogs? He's got wolves and things around him. I mean, that's fascinating. I, I'm down with that. Um, and when I, I look at the idea of the, the escalation towards the, the martyrdom there, I think it's actually a great role model to say you have such enduring faith to that point and, and not to give in to, to the pagan idols that people try to force other people to do. I mean, that's something that goes on today. It's not under the guise of this is another divine being, but a lot of times in our culture they want us to say, throw away your Christian virtues in the name of this or that. So I say hot. I'd say it's awesome. It's it's wonderful theological inspiration, and I think that's something we can all use. Well, we'll wrap this up section this section up for now, and we'll be back with it again uh, here in the future with some other theological items to discuss. And with that, we'll be back here in a moment. One of the great themes in our culture is the question of education. What form of education is best for our children? And what do we as individuals need to do to make sure that we're informed? Is college necessary for success? How do we ensure that we are preparing ourselves and our children to live healthy lives? Today in our devotional and in our discussion, we're going to first look at Colossians chapter 3. And let's just begin by reading that text. All right, so starting with the first verse, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above and not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Down to verse 12. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called to one body, and be thankful. In regards to education, it really begins at home. It begins with the individual. As we read our text, we we start off in this first verse that being raised in Christ is the pathway to developing the, the moral architecture needed to live a healthy life. And many, when they look at our society, they look at our culture, they say, we're going to fix education by starting with the big picture. In other words, a top-down sort of macro approach. However, education really begins at home, whether it be with your children or whether it begins with you as an indi- individual looking to, to expand your mind. We, we often want to take the top-down approach to education. However, as we read our text, we really are reminded that there is a, a huge emphasis on each of us having personal virtue and us learning each of those virtues and being able to do something special with them. Different people are at different 
levels of maturity and different levels of development. Not everybody is in the same circumstances. We really don't need a one-size-fits-all system. There really is no one-size-fits-all answer to education. It is important to remember that Christ meets people as individuals. He comes to them and brings transformation to their circumstances as they need. He always moves them towards something which is better, towards that holy nature of God. So I think there's a couple of motivations behind kind of this idea of, of trying to rely on a top-down approach or relying on a bigger structure. And for some people, it, it helps alleviate personal responsibility. But I think most people see that even if they have the personal responsibility, there are those who don't. And so there has to be this structure that, that educates um, when parents or, or others choose not um, to do it or, or to learn about the various um, choices that there might be to whatever fits their child. Um, however, I, I think this even fails. It, it seems compassionate, but it, it doesn't work either because, again, it, it's alleviating responsibility for someone else to help people in need. Um, in our discussion, we, we were talking about the church and how the church has responded to those um, as they look around and say, you know what, the structures, the, the government, the whatever, has not been doing what it needs to do to educate people and, and to teach them what it means um, to be the um, the people of God, or just in regular education, things as basic as reading and writing. And so the church really has to then look at its resources and to participate in the community uh, on how best to reach people. And again, often when we talk about education, and we've mentioned children a lot, but this is for, for everyone and anyone, um, on, on how best to create these systems and structures for gathering information and improving lives. And so we're going to reference a couple of bits of our history. And um, Dylan, I think you were going to talk about more about Angela Marici. Yeah. Um, and before I mention Angela, St. Angela, I want to point out that in this conversation, we're not here to beat up on public school, private school, or homeschool, or anything like that. A lot of times people hear this language and they say, well, you're saying education begins at home, therefore you're, you're beating up on, on something else. No, that's not what we're doing at all. We're saying that education is something which should be tailored in involving the individual no matter what circumstance you're at. And now moving on to St. Angela, one of the things that I find so fascinating, and we, we learn so much from church history because they, they give us role models to really follow and, and embody in our own lives. So St. Angela Marici, we talked about a few weeks ago, she was somebody who she went out and, again, no um, political correct language, no soft, easy terms. She comes and she says, I hate the ignorance of children. She's seen children that were uneducated, and she hated the ignorance of the children. And... Coming into this situation, her response to it wasn't to go um, yell at someone else or go to, to demand that this would be fixed from some sort of external approach. Her response to this is, I'm going to go to this situation myself, and I'm going to teach children. I'm going to do things where I, I put together different structures and systems where these kids are getting educated. It was, I'm going to take personal responsibility where other people have failed. Again, there are going to be people who, who don't there are going to be children who don't have people involved in their lives. There are going to be people who are in bad circumstances. But the role model of St. Angela says we don't go and demand someone else deal with it. We go and we find ways to deal with it in our own communities and in our own lives. And that's really the only way that we can really better our systems in our world. We can't expect some external force to, to fix it, whether it be government or whether it be some just policy. It always comes with people saying we're taking the kingdom of God into our personal lives, and we're going to do something with it. We are raised in Christ, and we're going to go and raise others in Christ. 
Another lesson from history, something probably more familiar with those within the Protestant tradition, is Sunday school. Now, usually when we hear about Sunday school, we think about a little Bible study that happens right before Sunday morning service, or something that in um, kind of recent years has been called small groups. But the history of Sunday school started as an approach by uh, church members, I believe it was in England during the Industrial Revolution, where they looked out and they saw that there were children who were working. Remember, this is before the time they had child labor laws. And so children were forced to work if they were to help their families, or maybe they were orphans and they had no other means of uh, surviving. And so they were forced to work Monday through Saturday. Because Sunday was the day of rest, they were, of course, off of work. And so members of the church and the Christian community said, now's the time we're going to sit these children down and we're going to educate them. We're going to teach them how to read and how to write, how to do basic math, how to have the skills to be a productive member of society, how they can survive and have the resources um, to do better and hopefully get out of these horrible situations that they were in. And so the church has always been concerned with education. And here's another interesting thing is the church is the place where the world is swallowed whole, right? There's not an element of life that somehow exists outside of the jurisdiction of the church. Education, whether it is something like reading or history or even science, is all consumed by the energy and the forces of the church. And so whether you're learning about catechism, uh, saints, um, the theology of the Trinity, or you're learning how to, um, th how the scientific method works, all this is involved and should be involved in the life of the church. And so ministries ex specifically to children and youth that are actually helpful and, and work well are ones that don't just look at little activities for children and youth, but say, how can we engage the people of our community and also not just children and youth, but also their families and provide families with resources on how best to educate the entire unit? And I think that's a great place to, to end our discussion today. Um, do be involved in, in your communities. Be actively engaged in that. Again, take the approach of, of St. Angela. Say, we're going to do something about this personally. Um, so if you enjoyed our program today, please subscribe or Follow our channel. Um, you can find us on YouTube. Just do a search for Kingdom of the Logos. You can find us on iTunes, SoundClouds, or CastBox. There are podcasts for you. You can download it and take it with us. If you enjoy our content, please leave us a comment. Please uh, share our content with others. You can copy the link, send it. There are a lot of ways that you can share our content. Again, it helps us out so much if you will share our content. That's really going to help us grow, and then we'll be able to produce more content. And again, in closing... We thank you for spending time with us. It is greatly appreciated. And as we generally do, um, Anthony is going to give us a cheap platitude here in a moment, but I would like to point out where we are recording at the studio at Jolton Church of the Nazarene. We have a lot of renovation going on in the church, so you may be able to hear some of that in the background. And if that was the case today, I apologize for that. But before we close out, Anthony, will you give us a cheap platitude? Well, I'd like to give a little disclaimer, too, just to... Um everyone listening, that uh, we do recognize that schools and the government and colleges have an obligation and a responsibility to meet education standards. So we're not trying to cast that off, but we also understand that people have a, a personal responsibility as well, and that's the one that they can take care of on their own and first, you know, and that's often the one that people overlook, even though that's the one that they can actually achieve and the one that they have the highest probability of actually achieving. But in any case, the cheap platitude is, sometimes 
four years in a cell is worth more than four years in a college. And of course, that's in reference to St. Colette, who at a young age said, I'm going to be walled up and spend four years doing penance. I voluntarily am going to do this. And then she goes out to be quite productive in the kingdom of God. And on that note, have a blessed day.